Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. My name is Elijah Daly, and I get to be uh, one of the ministers here on staff. And Ethan's done a great job reading that huge chunk every service. The, the, The scripture was actually smaller when I first received it. And then I was like, what do you think if we just did like... I don't know, the whole chapter. <laughs> and uh, they're like, yeah. And so all week people have been like, so just to make sure you, you want the, the whole thing read. And I was like, well, yeah, it's the Bible, you know. And they're like, oh, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, we'll read the whole thing. So they've been doing great with it. It's long. And that's what we're going to unpack today. Now, if you're just joining us, we're in the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at the identity, the person and work of Christ, how he is the one. He's the Messiah. And really, the last several weeks, we've been looking at different dimensions of how Mark begins to unpack his identity. So we've looked at the powerful one. We've looked at the miraculous one. We've looked at the healer. He is someone significant. And today, what we're looking at is he is the holy one, the holy one. Now, admittedly, okay, holiness is not as fun of a topic to talk about as the powerful one or the miraculous one, uh, but it is a big deal in Scripture. It's pretty much throughout all of it. It's an important concept. In fact, Leviticus is like an entire book dedicated to talking about holiness. In fact, you probably, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, uh, you probably have already given up or you're in the middle of it right now, or maybe you just finally finished it. Either way, I want to encourage you, keep going, all right? Keep going, keep pushing through. It's worth it. There's meaning to it. There's substance to it. And you can, as long as you keep mining, you'll, you'll get there. You'll find it. You'll find these little bitty jewels that stick out and bring this story to life. I know it sounds strange at times why God loves the smell of barbecue so much and why he doesn't want you to eat a dolphin. But I'm telling you, there's purpose to it, okay? But we're going to talk about holiness today. And I'll be honest with you, self-disclosure, as I, as I thought about this message and prayed over just this time together, I came to this conclusion, nobody is worthy to talk about holiness, except for the man who walked, the God-man who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And really, since his departure, he has given us the Holy Spirit to wield and to use to empower imperfect instruments, people, broken vessels, to expound upon his holy word. And there's really no way you can talk about holiness without talking about hard things. And so let me just make sure this is clear. Today, I am a fellow traveler along this road. That the things that I preach and speak from God's word are the things that I must receive myself. And in particular, I can say this from my own experience thus far. That in the things that seemed hardest and most impossible to overcome... God promises to achieve in you. And so as we talk about holiness, what our text is going to unpack is it's going to unpack the need for holiness. It's going to unpack the idea of of the illusion of holiness. And it's going to unpack the way to holiness. But before we do that, I just want to focus on what it is. What is it? The best analogy probably that I've ever heard somebody give was actually from Beth DeFazio. She was teaching our second through fourth graders, and I happened to be in the room that day, and she used this analogy of a toothbrush. Now, if you took our Leviticus class, you've probably heard me use this analogy before because it is the perfect analogy. 
We all know what a toothbrush is, and we all know what a toothbrush is for. It is set apart for a very specific task, isn't it? It has to maintain a level of cleanliness for entry, okay? And because of that, it's kept in a specific place. It's not used for anything else other than my teeth. It must be kept pure, amen? Amen. In fact, I was out there uh, after last service. Uh, Jerry, one of our guys who serves on our security team, he came up to me and he said, have you ever heard that story about the little boy that, you know, he, he accidentally uh, knocked his toothbrush into the toilet? And his mom grabbed it out and she said, hey, when this falls in the toilet, uh, you got to throw it away. So she threw it away, starts brushing her teeth, and she puts it back and he grabs it and he throws it into the trash can. And she looks at him and he goes, I accidentally knocked yours in a couple days ago. <laughs> <laughs> Toothbrushes are meant to be clean, aren't they? (laughs) Now, notice here about a toothbrush. It's meant to be holy. It's meant to be set apart. It's meant to be clean. But it's partly because it's related to purpose. And I don't want you to miss that. That the holiness, the set-apartness, the cleanliness of the toothbrush is not just so that it stands in our house as something to admire. That would be very strange. Someone came in and said, oh my goodness, what a great-looking toothbrush. And it spins. Wow, that would be strange, okay? The toothbrush is meant to be set apart for its purpose, and its purpose is to clean something. That's what it was created for. So holiness, it entails not just the purity of something, but its purpose, its identity. Now... You could probably understand why God talks so much about his holiness, about why he's so concerned with operating out of his holiness. Because to compromise God's holiness is to compromise his identity and purpose. Now perhaps you can see why God's so concerned with your holiness. To compromise your holiness is to compromise your identity and purpose. Holiness matters. Holiness matters. Let's look at the need of holiness. And this really starts right in verse 1, Mark 7, verse 1. Let's look at what it says together. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of their scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. They wash a lot of things, don't they? So here we have two groups, okay? Pharisees, scribes. Both are a part of the religious community. Very, very much embedded into what it means to belong and believe. They consider these things exceptionally important. Probably like most of us in this room, we consider our beliefs important. And they were people that were two areas that that really allowed their lives to become expressions of that belief. Okay, so so the scribes, what they would do, the scribes would come, they would copy all of the laws. They would copy scriptures. Okay, they didn't have the printing press, right? They didn't have the internet. They had to copy everything to preserve it. So they would copy the laws. They would copy the traditions. They would copy transactions and records and genealogies, all those things. They'd make sure that it got written down and copied over and over again. They kept track of it all. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were not just people who kept track of those things, but embodied them. And they were both fundamental parts of this religious community. They were people that, that others looked up to. And that's why when they come and they see Jews not doing what they're supposed to be doing, not following the commands, not following the traditions, they start to get concerned. Why? Because to them, holiness matters. It's a, a really an integral part of their history, of their story. We know this. Exodus is a really good example of this. 
When Moses is talking to God and God is saying, okay, get the people ready because I'm about to give them a glimpse into my presence. A little small taste. I want you to get them ready. And listen to what it says. Exodus 19, Exodus 19, verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their garments and have them ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. But you shall set boundaries for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall certainly be put to death. Okay, now, listen to what it says. It's saying, if you want to get close to God, if you're somebody who wants to get close to him, maybe you're somebody who wants to please him, you're somebody who, who recognizes that this is some, something worthwhile to approach. They all had to wash. They all had to wash their garments. It's not really hard to imagine why they would have to do something like this. If you go to a job interview, what do you do? Well, you dress for the occasion, right? You go on a date, what do you do? You dress for the occasion, right? We all know we got that shirt in our closet that fits just right. Not every shirt's like this one, you know? Some of them, the bottom's a little too high, maybe it's a little too long, the sleeves are a little too tight, the bacon's turned into, or the neck's turned into the bacon neck, you know what I mean? Like, we all recognize we got that one thing that we can wear that we know that's going to be the right call for this type of occasion. And I, here's the thing. I know that the men in this church know what I'm talking about. Because I swear that for those of us who went to the men's conference last year, we got that shirt and we were like, this is it. And that thing is everywhere now. And I have good news. If you're going to the men's conference again, we're getting a new shirt this year. All right? So you're going to have another one. Nonetheless, this is what we mean when, when he's talking about dressing for the occasion, preparing for it, being ready for it. And we understand that, don't we? What we don't understand is why God would kill us if we don't. Like, why is God being so strict about not touching certain things or getting near him in certain ways? Isn't the whole saying, like, come as you are? This doesn't seem anything like that. I can't have any sort of disease. Why is he excluding some people with diseases? Why is he excluding people who have been near death or a dead body or a funeral of sorts? Why is he, why is he excluding people who maybe have just become dirtied by different ways? Why? And do you hear what he says? Even touch the mountain and you'll be torn down. Why? Why must they wash because God is trying to teach them something. And he's trying to teach us something too. Tim Keller, I think, says it best. He says that when you consider death, dirt and death and disease, all of these things, that they are nothing compared to the sin that is in us. We need to be cleansed. We need to be washed. You see, back to our toothbrush analogy, what do we do if it falls on the floor? We have to purify it. But the real question is, how dirty does it have to become before it's thrown out? Do you see that you were designed to be holy and to be with the Holy One? But what does God do when we become dirtied and diseased? You see, the religious people, the question became, how do we just make it so we never even have to wonder whether we have become that dirty? How do we bring washing, not just in going near God in the temple, but bring washing into our every moment of our life? You know, is it possible to even do that? So one of the things that they did is they washed their hands in the morning before they lifted them to pray. Another thing that they did is exactly what they're referring to here. They washed their hands before they ate. And this did not have anything to do with germs. It had everything to do 
with considering even their food, even their meal, as something that came from God. It was sacred. It was provided by the maker himself. Now, it appears as if the Pharisees and the scribes, that they're passionate about holiness. That they're concerned when they see the disciples maybe breaking a tradition that might compromise their holiness. But it's a lie. Mark has already pointed this out in chapter 3, that the Pharisees are trying to entrap Jesus. They are following him around, observing him, and trying to expose him. But here, Jesus will flip the tables and he will expose the Pharisees. He will expose their misunderstanding of holiness, and he will show them that that misunderstanding is why they have tried to weaponize it. Let's look at the illusion of holiness. The illusion of holiness picks up in verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Okay, a lot of text there, a lot to parse out. Let's take a step back. What is going on? The general idea around this specific passage that Jesus is trying to identify, isolate, and unpack is simply this. The Pharisees are hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. That word hypocrite is literally somebody who wears a mask. They're trying to appear appear like something on the outside that is covering what's actually true on the inside. It's masking it. This is the illusion of holiness. These are image managers. Now, then what Jesus does is he gives you two reasons why we know that these people are are managing their image. The first is that they do things that look good to everybody, that look good to the people in their society, that look good to the cultural expectations and the religious expectations that people would have upon them. Now again, we have all sorts of these things in our life. We have things that we see in our society, in our culture, that we're like, if you do that, you're a good person. If you don't do that, you're a bad person. You know, all these things. We have all these things. I'll give you, I'll give you a few just so you can understand. Not putting the cart back in the rack, all right? That would make some people grumble under their breath, you know? Or at least kind of raise their eyebrows like, well, what is this guy? Who's this guy? He's not a Christian. I can tell you that, you know? <laughs> The other thing that I've, I've, I've noticed people is like, you know, if you're on the highway and you're driving in the left lane, but you're going under the speed limit, that's going to cause some grumbling. I can tell you that right now. This is for everybody in here. I, I know that this is going to be a blessing to people in this room right now. Um, here's another thing. The most probably impure place on this campus is, is right in front of the cafe, right where the walkway is. Because if you see somebody having a conversation right in the doorway, right in the, in the path right there, that right there is the most grumbling place out there. I can tell you that right now, okay? The other thing that I've noticed, and this is actually, this is my pet peeve. And honestly, I, I'm just bringing this up more so because I can, okay? But the people who talk on speakerphone in a public place, okay? <laughs> now listen, None of these things mean anything about your goodness. They're not, none, none of these things, you know, have to do with goodness in and of themselves, okay? But if you do them, you might belong to Satan, okay? So, <laughs> listen, the Pharisees, they understood that, 
All right? And they were, in many ways, as badges of honor, badges of belonging, badges of where it is you belong to society and how it is you behaved within it. And there were expectations put on us. And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. He references Isaiah and he says, man, you follow rules, but the heart, it's, there's an issue there. You haven't dealt with the actual condition of what's wrong. And then he mentions the second thing that they do to manage their image. And this one is actually much more insidious, much more deceptive. They justify wrong things by putting a religious spin on them. In other words, they don't just mask their image. They mask the image of their sin. Now, here's how Jesus explains it. For us, we're separated from this. We have to kind of dig in a little bit deeper, take a step in. What's he talking about? He starts to reference this tradition that they had with vows. What you could do at this point is if you were a religious person and, and you really wanted to, to give an offering to God, what you could do is I'm going to take my wealth, I'm going to take maybe some property, and I'm going to vow this to God. I'm going to give it to him. And then once that vow happened, uh, you, weren't, you couldn't revoke it. Like your property, your finances, these were given to God. You can't go back on something you've given to God. So that was it. What Jesus is referring to is actually that when they did that, it made it so that many of them received praise from their religious community. Wow, incredible. Did you know, did you hear that he gave that land away? Did you hear that he gave this much money to support the cause, you know? But then what happens is their family, their, their parents, they're left uncared for. That's what Jesus is, is addressing here. You see, the Pharisees, they're concerned about the traditions of men and, they're, and they're, what they do is they, they have the scribes with them and they say, hey, the traditions say that you, you gotta wash your hands. And then the scribes are like, yeah, see? It says right here, you know? And this is where Jesus shows his brilliance because he says, I'm not gonna quote the traditions. I'm gonna quote the word of God. I'm gonna quote Isaiah. I'm gonna quote Leviticus. I'm gonna quote Exodus. And you're, you understand, you agree what the word of God says. Honor your father and mother. And then we of course, but then he says, but then you go and you vow your property away. You vow this wealth away and you leave your parents uncared for. And you know how brilliant Jesus is in this moment because you know who kept track of those vows? The scribes. And you have to look at him and he said, am I right? And they would say, yeah, he's right. You see, Jesus is brilliant because he shows them they're masking their sin. This is the illusion of holiness. They are self-righteous. They are image managers. But here's the question that I always wrestle with when I come to the Pharisees. How did they not know it? How did they not recognize it in themselves? They had the Holy One right before them. How could they not see Him clearly? They recognized the, the, the weaknesses and the deficiencies in everyone else around them. How could they not see it in themselves? The same way we can't. The same reason we have someone in our head that this text is for, not us. The same reason that we can see ourselves in the story as the disciple getting scolded instead of the Pharisees that are pointing. You see, as long as we measure our, our holiness by the purity of our actions instead of the purity of our hearts, we are Pharisees. And this is what Jesus meant when he's quoting Isaiah saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We are the religious people. We are the ones in church. Pharisees have become the caricature of the self-righteous. 
They're the ones who go to the gathering, who pray before meals. Maybe they give financially, but their hearts continue to produce wickedness. Pharisees speak Christianese. They speak about God things, but then they're harsh with their family. They speak out about homosexuality, but they hide their porn addiction. They, they give financially, but cheat on their taxes. They speak about the evils of abortion, but do nothing to lift a finger toward foster care or adoption or the people that are enduring those types of situations. They sing about the beauty and the wonder of who God is, and yet they go behind closed doors and they tear down one who bears his image. You see, Pharisees, they are offended by the call to holiness, or they don't think it concerns them at all. And the biggest complaint I hear in my pastoral conversations with students is that the parent that they see at church is not the parent that they see at home. The biggest complaint I hear from non-Christians is that the Christians who say that they love Christ and his cross do not ever pick it up anywhere else. Instead of Jesus calling us to pick up a cross, and that being a symbol of following him no matter the cost, we've simply put it on a golden chain. You see, social media, it's allowed us to have a public square of theater where we lift our books and we lift our prayers and we tell everybody what our vacations are like and, our, and what we are concerned about and we have these claims of justice all the while leaving our own sins un unaddressed. And then we develop these rationales, these justifications for why it is we do what we do when we, when we make a mistake. Well, I, was, I had to do this or I was forced into this position or I didn't have any other option or this was just a moment of weakness. It was just a slip. Or we just dress it up entirely. My professor said it like this. Instead of cheating, it's creative accounting. Instead of lying, it's massaging the truth. Instead of profanity, it's freedom of expression. It's not gossip. It's concern. We've become critics and cynics, shouting about evil, but doing nothing about it. And Jesus, he looks at the religious, at the Pharisees, and he says, put on whatever mask you want. I can see behind it. Now perhaps you realize how important it was for me to tell you, me too, that I'm a fellow traveler down this road, that my longing for holiness sometimes becomes distracted, and my contentment for where I currently am becomes enough. Jesus gathers everyone around him and he speaks a definitive word upon them. He says this in verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see what whatever, that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You see, Jesus makes it clear there isn't enough water to wash the dirt away. 
Your actions, they're not going to do the trick. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how much money you give. It doesn't matter how accepting you can be. It's not your hands that are the problem. It's the heart. It needs to be cleansed. It needs to be washed. How? How do you wash a heart? Let's look at the way to holiness. The way to holiness. How do we get holiness? Now, here's the most ironic thing about this whole passage, is that Jesus never answers the question. He never gives his audience an answer. The most encouraging part of those 23 verses is in verse 19, when it says, thus he declared all foods clean. Interpretation? Bacon, good. That's it. That's the most encouraging part about that, that entire passage. Bacon, good. It's a strange ending to the conversation. Jesus gathers everybody. He goes through a list of sins that all of us read and we're like, yeah, I'm on there. He pins everyone against the wall. He tells them that this is what actually produces wickedness. This is what defiles a person. This is what makes them unclean. And that's it. Mark, uh, in verse 24, it says, Jesus went from there to a place near Tyre. He just, he's like, all right, so have a good day. And then he just leaves. But here again, here again, the scriptures show us their brilliance. Because right after Jesus goes to a new town, a new story begins. Listen to what it says. He entered a house. He did not want anyone to know where he was, but he could not keep it a secret. Soon a woman heard about him. An evil spirit controlled her little daughter. The woman came to Jesus and fell at his feet. She was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, that was a good reply. You may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Have you ever felt desperation in your life before? Have you ever felt something and you longed for it and you needed it so much but you felt totally powerless to bring it about? I'll be honest with you. This story, this story hits close to home for me. I know I've shared with you before that my son Keller, when he was four years old, he randomly contracted E. coli and he was one of the unlucky ones that, that, that made a toxin that started to destroy all of his red blood cells. And as soon as that begins to happen, your organs are no longer functioning in the ways that they should be. They begin to shut down. And I remember the first two days of this entire experience, and they were terrible. He writhed and screamed in pain every 30 minutes to an hour, in agony, this four-year-old little body. I remember taking him into bed with me, and my wife went to sleep in another room, so at least one of us had energy for the next day. And I remember being up with him all night, praying, God, please, stop it. Just let him have a couple hours. Just give him some relief, something. I know desperation. This is a story of desperation. Because here this woman comes, who is, by every Jewish metric, unclean. Not only because she is a Gentile woman, but because she has been near her daughter, whose body is the house of a demon. A powerful, foul, unclean entity. And it says that the woman begged Jesus, drive the demon out. 
And Jesus replies to her in a strange way because he's teaching her and because he's teaching us. He says this, first let the children eat all they want, he told her. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, that was a good reply. You may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. How do we clean the heart? What is the way to holiness? You see, Mark is telling us that not even for Gentile sinners, not even for those who have a demon, are they too far dirty and gone for him. Only the master of the table has the power to wash the heart. Are you desperate enough for it? Are you crawling to the table? Are you begging for the master of the table to wash you because you recognize your hands are not powerful enough, that the water is not clean enough, that it's only by the grace of the master? I can tell you why this is possible. Because there will be another table that Jesus sat at where he took the bread and he took the cup and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And he took the pain, he took the shame, he took the guilt, he took all of sin, all of its impurities, all of its curse, all of its uncleanness onto himself. He nailed it to a cross so it would no longer have to define you ever again. And the invitation, the call that Jesus invites us to is the same call that he himself endured. Come and die and live. Because Jesus has nothing else for you than radical alteration. Jesus doesn't just intend to invite you to his death and resurrection, but one of your own. Where everything that is deformed is put to death, and everything that is life you are clothed with, and it resembles the master of the table. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it is through faith, believing and receiving, that we can crawl to the table and ask God for what we could never produce on our own. Only he can make us clean. And so today, what we're going to do is share this table together to become beggars again, to become desperate for the master, If those are serving communion, you can go ahead and head back. Because as they do, we are reminded of what it is we are here to do. Pharisees, you know what, the the temptation of self-righteousness, the temptation of self-righteousness will bring you to this moment and you'll say, this is just another thing that I do. I'm good enough, I'm fine, I'm, I'm fine. Everything's been going well, you know, I don't have anything. But a Christian, they'll say, man, I still need this. There's still more he's doing. There's still more he's changing. There's still more I need. There's still more I'm desperate for because I'm desperate for the Holy One. I'm desperate for him. And so today we eat of the bread. We drink of the cup because we are reminded of the cost of our sin and the cost of our holiness. And we enjoy the table with the master. And in this, we remind ourselves each time that God longs to produce in us a love that longs for him so much it produces the life we're after. We were not made to be holy just so we could be something that's admired, 
that's just there and wow, how amazing. It's a part of our identity and purpose because we were made to be with the Holy One. We were made to be with Him. Maybe you've never made that decision before. Maybe you have no faith at all. Maybe you need to, maybe that faith needs to be excited. Maybe it needs to be changed or just have a conversation about. We want to. We want to have that conversation because the, the table's worth being at when you know that the grace of the master is available. So today, let us take the cup and the bread and teach ourselves, remind ourselves to remain desperate for the master of the table. Holiness matters. And God provides it. Let's pray. Father God, you are good and faithful. And we are grateful, Father, that you allow us to come and enjoy every part of who you are. That the things that once separated us no longer have to. That our faith and belief can grow and not just bring us change in our life, which is a blessing, but more importantly, it can bring us into your life, which is everything. It is our purpose to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Father, may today be one more day where we look inwardly and we ask you to take what we are powerless to change. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.